right. Does everyone have a Bible? Yeah? First Samuel chapter 8. Uh, to where we are going to be. Open up with a word of prayer. Most gracious Heavenly Father, thank you, Lord, for this this evening, Lord, that we can uh, get together and open up your word, Lord, celebrate answered prayers. And I, I just praise you so much for that, Lord. What an awesome, beautiful blessing. And I thank you, Lord, that we we have a God that hears and that, that knows you know, exactly what's going on in our lives and where we're at and uh, what we need. And I pray, Lord, that you would speak to us, Lord, in this place and, and uh, have something for each and every one of us that's specific and personal and, and probing. And Lord, I thank you for that. Lord, so we trust that into your hands and ask, Lord, that you would be pleased and glorified in this place as we study your word. Your name, Amen. Amen. Okay, so, 1 Samuel chapter 8. <coughs> if you're already there, coming off this Mitzpah experience where, uh, you know, they, they get together as a, as a nation and uh, it's really this mountaintop experience kind of thing where Israel repents they cast off their old idols and they cry out to the Lord, commit themselves wholeheartedly to him. And uh, then the Philistines come out to confront them. And God has heard them. He goes out to battle on behalf of them. And it's this amazing uh, story where they're confused and confounded and God grants Israel complete victory. And so Samuel sets up this stone as a memorial. He calls it Ebenezer, saying, Thus far the Lord has helped us. Is that my baby? Okay. okay. So through all the ups and downs, the Lord has been with us. And what can you say about a God that is that good? Right? When you study the history of Israel, uh, to, to, to set up a stone at this point and to say, thus far the Lord has been with us. You know, through all of the good, and there have been you know, some really good, glorious moments in Israel's history, and through all of the bad, and, and through you know, even the ugly, we have a God that hears. Right, that he's not blind to our tears. We have this God that, that is constantly with us through everything that we drag him through sometimes when we drag him through our sins, through every uh, struggle that we try and take on without him. Uh, he's always there. And it's an amazing thing uh, to consider that that is our God. And Israel sets up this stone to remember that, right? To reflect upon that. It doesn't matter if we're on our high holy hills, if we're in our worst, uh, most pitiful valleys. This is our God. And we have an awesome God that is deserving of all of our praise. Uh, and unfortunately, there's a stark contrast between 
chapter 7 and chapter 8. You see, chapter 7 is written to remind us of a God that does not waver. It's constant. And chapter 8 is written to remind us of a people that will waver, that are completely inconsistent. Uh, and we are those people, right? We are the children of Israel, that after seeing the goodness and the grace of God, that after looking at God and saying, what an awesome God we serve, that we get to know, that we have the honor and privilege of walking with, are capable of astounding amnesia, that, that we can in a moment completely forget uh, who he is and abandon uh, his, his, his amazing grace to seek a savior elsewhere. And that's exactly what they begin to do in this chapter. And there's three steps down that we're going to consider as we make our way through this chapter. So there are three points. So if you're a note taker, right, there's some I think pens, maybe, maybe just candy canes. These will lick them, and you can scroll <laughs> notes wherever, wherever you may. Um, there are these three points to consider, and the first one is a failed minister. The first step down, a failed minister. And the second one, an envious and ashamed saint. And the third one, a rejected king. Those will be our three points for the evening. And we begin with a failed minister in the first three verses. When Samuel grew old, he appointed his sons as judges for Israel. And the name of his firstborn was Joel. The name of his second was Abijah. And they served at Beersheba. But his sons did not walk in his ways and turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. Last week, Sam talked about how these judges were appointed as judges, and it's an amazing thing to consider, and, and, I, and I, I loved that point in the message because it's absolutely true. And these were ordinary guys that just took the initiative, and as they did, the nation followed behind them. Right? They were never appointed. They were never elected. Uh, these are just guys that saw what needed to be done and trusted in God and set out to, to do it. And all of them fall into that pattern with this single exception. This is the deviation. It's Samuel's sons that were appointed as judges over Israel. Right? And, they were, uh, and he put them in this position that they really had no place in. And, and they, they shouldn't have been put in. They didn't walk in his ways. They weren't men of integrity or great spirituality. Uh, nevertheless, Samuel allowed them to minister before the Lord and to his people. And, and, and let me tell you, I can't tell you how many ministers I've seen that have fallen into uh, this trap. It's nepotism at its finest uh, when, you, when you get right down to the root of it, where the family runs the church. And, and you need to consider, well, is the family... Uh, called to run the business of the church as their father is, is called to be in the business of the church? And does the family have the integrity of the father in running the church? And are, are they simply family? And that's why they're in this business in the first place. Is that the singular thing that qualifies them for the ministry that they're involved in? 
and and they would say, well, after all, in this economy, it's not uh, necessarily uh, how good you are at a thing; it's who you know in order to elevate you to to a thing. And and uh, and you know, this is this is the connection that I have, and so this is the job that I'm in. And and uh, if you're not called to serve God humbly and and walk before him uh, righteously with integrity, then you're probably doing more harm than good. And you're probably doing harm that you're not even completely aware of. And that's exactly what happens with Samuel and his sons. You know, it's amazing to consider that in all of Scripture, Samuel is one of these people that stands out as one of the very rare cases of a man that never has a specific sin attached to him. Right? There's nothing that you'll read in Scripture where you say, Samuel, ah, that's, that's his moment. That's when he fell. That's when this man of God, this righteous, upstanding saint was taken down a notch and he's human just like the rest of us because we all sin. Right? There's nothing like that that you will ever see in Scripture. Yet this subtle sin led to the greatest and most fundamental change in all of Israel's history. Right? This is what broke the people of being a theocracy. This is what broke them of being a people governed by God only. Right? And of course, uh, God will see it for what it is, and, and it has less to do with Samuel's sons than it really has to do with them simply wanting to be like everybody else in the world. And, and he'll say that they haven't rejected you, they've rejected me. But Samuel's nepotism gave these people uh, a justification for their own rebellion. And they would look to Samuel and they would say, your sons are not like you, therefore they shouldn't be doing what you do. And continuing in verse 4, so all the elders of Israel gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah and they said to him, you are old, (laughs) you're old, and your sons do not walk in your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us, such as all the other nations have. Right, and this is our second point, right? An envious and ashamed saint. And, uh, and so they come to Samuel and they say, Samuel, you're an old man. And your sons, they're terrible. Right, they're nothing like you. And uh, so we need a king. Give us a king so that we <laughs> blend in. All the other nations, they have kings. Right? And, and we feel like we should have a king because they all have kings and we're sick of being so different right? and being so abnormal in the world. And, and a king would just make everything easier. Right? Our leadership would be less ambiguous uh, and, and uncomfortable. And, and theirs was to this point in Israel's history a true venture of faith. Right? They go out there just believing in God, trusting in God, seeing what God will do in and through them as a nation, as a people group, and they're sick of it. And they want to be out of this whole experiment. And uh, they said, man, it would just be so, so swell to have a guy. And that guy, that guy just says, hey, you, do this. And he says, hey, you other person, uh, do that and go here and uh, be my slave and everything else. And everyone else got with the program a long time ago, so we need to catch up. And, um, and you can really look at this in two different ways, right? Because they say there uh, in verse 5, right, we want a king 
such as all the other nations have. Right? We want it uh, just like everyone else has it. And the first way that you can look at this, and I think both of these, these have merit, and they're, they're probably both accurate in what this actually means. Where, where they look at them and they say, they have it and we want it. Everyone else has a king, we want a king. And, and uh, boy, I remember doing this so much as a child, right? And I remember being a little Michael and, uh, and really struggling with this. I remember distinctly one time as a young man uh, going to Toys R Us on my brother's birthday with my grandma. And uh, my grandma took us both into Toys R Us and she said, Brian, it's your birthday. You can have any toy that you want. And I felt so much shame because even at, at five or six or whatever I was, 27, uh, I, knew that, I, knew, I knew that it was wrong right, to feel this way. But he was getting a toy and I wanted a toy because he was getting a toy. And so I began to cry. And, and I was just, I was completely upset. And, and, and my grandma did uh, what God does. My grandma said, okay, well, little Michael, uh, you, you know, you, you want a toy and I'm going to give you your toy. And God says, okay, little Israel, you, wanna, you want a king, so I'm going to give you your king. And when you get it, it is going to serve as a reminder, right, that you couldn't wait until it was the right time for you to have it. Right? And I was shamed by that toy. I remember going home and looking at it and going, oh, I got a toy. I'm such a loser, you know, and just, just looking at it and, and just feeling terrible about myself. But, but here's the thing, a toy, a toy isn't a bad thing, right? And a king isn't a bad thing. God, uh, in, in Deuteronomy, had accounted for a king, right? It was part of his law, it's part of his will, it's part of the plan and the program. He says, you guys are going to have a king, but this wasn't the time for me to have a toy. And this wasn't the time for Israel to have a king. God was still preparing their king. But no, we don't want you to rule over us for another moment. We want uh, what we want, and we want it right now, because all of our brothers out there in the world already have it. So they, they put up a fuss, and they, they said, uh, you know, this is what I want, and I want it. I want it my way, uh, right away. And that's Burger King, isn't it? Which is delightful. I, I, uh-huh. I love that Whoppers. Was it Bur- not Burger King? Oh, I'm sorry. <laughs> sorry, I can't live up to your standards. <laughs> and, 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 but, but, and I wish that this was, it was only like this when we were kids. But it's not. Right? And, and we never really grow out of this, if we're completely honest with ourselves. And, and even as adults, we look at other people and we see them you know, with their phone. And, and you go, uh-huh, they have a new phone, and I don't have that phone, and I want that phone. And, and you see people and they pull up in their car. I have, a, I have a coworker, and every single time she starts her car, it makes this, this terrible sound. Uh, there's something wrong with a belt or, I don't know, a propeller. I don't know anything about cars. <laughs> I'm sure they have. <laughs> but uh, it makes this, and, and, and I pulled up right after, and she was like, I, w- I want a car, and I want, I want your car. I just want, and I, I, I didn't know if she was going to take my car or something, of course. But she just said, I want a car that doesn't squeal. Every time I start my car, I want that car. And, and, but we see others in relationships. And, and you think, well, I want to have a relationship like that. 
And you see others with kids that maybe don't scream. And you go, I want to have, I want to have a kid like that. And, and we want everything easily and we want everything instantly and we assume that everything is ideal if you only had that other thing. Right? All these problems, they would all go away and everything would be uh, hunky-dory if I just had this, this thing. People don't say hunky-dory. Why do they say that? And we assume that nothing but good will come out of it and everything will be all right. And the first time I heard Sam say it was at Tony and Danny's wedding. And every time I've heard it since then has been uh, this wonderful confirmation of truth. Uh, we're at Sam, or we're at Sam's wedding. I, I wasn't there for Sam's wedding. Was I live at your wedding? Sorry. But at Tony and Danny's wedding, he said, um, the grass isn't greener on the other side of the fence. The grass is greener where you water it. And, uh, and it's a wonderful thing to, to think about. In chapter 7, Right, this chapter exists, last week's chapter, to prove that Israel can have a, a functional, a beautiful, a completely wonderful theocracy. Right, they can have it, and it can work. It can work very well. It can be as green as green can be if they water it with repentance and a continuous relationship with God. And we can have the same in everything. We don't need that new thing, whatever that thing would be, that, that deficit that we perceive in our lives. And you go, if I only had that, that thing out there. No, it could be green right here. It could be green right under your feet as, as the Lord pours out his, his spirit upon it and, and blesses you in it. And the second thing that we need to consider is uh, when they say, like the other nations have a king, uh, that it can mean that we want the same kind of king that they have. And, and I hope I'm not being uh, you know, too nitpicky about what this means, but I think that there are just these shades of meaning that add a lot of depth and color to this text, and where they say, we want a king like they have a king. Well, it could mean, right, on one hand, that they have a king and we want a king. And it could mean, well, we want a king exactly like their king. In Deuteronomy chapter 17, uh, God says, be sure to appoint over you the king, the Lord your God chooses. Right? God had planned a king 400 years ago for them. Right? He says, uh, I, I want you to pick this type of king. Not a king after the world's fashion, not a king like the world has. I want you to pick my type of king. And, and the Lord has been raising up that type of king, a man after his own heart that we'll meet soon. But they cried out, we want a king like everybody else has kings so that our kingdom can blend in with their kingdom. And God says, okay, that's the type of king that you want? And they say, yeah. He says, okay, you got it. And he's going to give it to them in order for them to see the dramatic contrast that exists between having a worldly king to rule and reign over you and having a heavenly king to rule and reign over you. So first we want it because everyone else has it. Second, we want it uh, the same way that everyone else has it. And, uh, and, and 
this is the point of all this, right? This is why we've gone through it all, and you're like, wow, this has been incredibly tedious to finally get to this point. But we're here, we've arrived, right? So you've made it. Um, when a follower of God begins to envy what the world has, it's time to stop and take stock of where you're at. We should be an enviable people. Right? It should be uh, the, the world that passes by and looks uh, through these windows that are completely covered in this door where they would have to be like two feet tall in order to see it. You know, it, it should be them that, that stop and look in and say, if I only had a God like they have a God. It, it, I mean, look at how good their God is to them. Look at how he, how he takes care of them. Look at how he hears them and answers their prayers. Look at how he breathes new life into them and, and completely changes the course that they are on. Look at the simplicity with which they're able to live their lives, you know, uncorrupted and complicated by sin and the ease, the ease that they order their life as the Lord leads them. Look at these people. Look at these these Christians and how they get together with their family and how they all seem to like each other and 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 they 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 enjoy you know cookies and cobbler and and I mean it's just wonderful. It's it's perfect and there's beautiful in there. They should be the ones that have our two points. They say I want to have what they have. They should be the ones that, that have this second point and say, and I want to have it exactly as they have it. I want their king. I want their kingdom. But the sad reality is that these are our two points because we forget how good we really have it. We're, we're prone uh, to this to this attitude that that's, that that reflects upon the Pharaoh fondly. It says, wow, I remember back when I was a slave in Egypt. Oh boy, I had some, I had some good garlic and leeks and whatever they say they had there. It's like, oh boy, what a grand time that was, slavery, mm, to have that again. And, and they, they look back fondly upon this really terrible and wretched time of, of bondage and shame and we forget what slavery to sin and suffering the consequences really feels like and, and, and how our great king this king that we have has freed us from all that and how he daily spares us from all that but this king looks at us and says boy if that's what you want I'm not going to stand in your way. Right? You can go ahead and have it. But here's what I'm going to tell you. You will not envy the world once you have tasted of their portion. You will only regret what you've given away in order to sit at that table once again. And in verse 6 he continues, And they said, Give us a king to lead us. This displeased Samuel, so he prayed to the Lord and the Lord told him listen to all that the people are saying to you it is not you they have rejected but they have rejected me as their king 
as they have done from the day I brought them up out of Egypt until this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are doing to you. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will do. Is that still not my baby? Okay. <laughs> Finally, a rejected king. Are you ever rejected king? And, and as sad as it is, this is really kind of a comforting verse to us. Um, and, and I don't know if you, if you perceive it to be that way. It all sounds just kind of dismal. But there is, there's a truth in this verse that I constantly cling to, uh, if I were to be completely honest with you, which I won't. All right, I'm going to make this sound a little bit better than what it is. Uh, but you can use your imagination. It's a very comforting verse to anyone that is in ministry, anyone that is sharing their faith with their friends and family, uh, because it's very easy to take it personally when people uh, dismiss your words. It's very easy to, you know, have that happen and then look at your yourself uh, in the mirror and go, wow. You're, you're a loser, man. <laughs> Just feel really bad about yourself. And I'm, 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 it, it is terribly difficult for me to take my own advice uh, when I say this, because I think whenever someone has rejected a message that I've given, um, it, they've rejected me. And it's happened because I'm just such a bad communicator. I'm flawed. Right, as as a follower, I shouldn't talk to people. Certainly, shouldn't be preaching in public <laughs> to people. You know, just not the type of thing where I should ever open up my mouth to another human being again, and uh, maybe just you know, uh, you know, shave my head and join a monastery type of situation. And I'm inching towards honesty. And I think, well, if only I was a better you know speaker, more dynamic, and less like myself, then, then people, people would respond. And, right, and I, know, I know the reality of Romans 1.16, and that's, that's an awesome verse. If you haven't committed it to memory, uh, that's definitely one of those verses right, to, to cling to. And Paul writing there, and he says, you know, I'm not ashamed of the gospel because I know it's the power of God right, for salvation for everyone who believes. Right? So I know that the power isn't in me. Right, because that's not what the Bible says. That's not where it should be. Uh, the power isn't in me. It's, it's in the message itself. It's in the spirit to work through that message. It's in uh, the ability of God to change someone with this message. I'm simply the messenger. And, uh, and, but I, I find myself still needing to be reminded of this quite often, that, that it's not our fault. Right, Most of the time. Sometimes it is. Right? Sometimes we're, we're obnoxious and we're rude and we're hypocritical and people don't listen to us because that's not the type of person that you would want to listen to. And, uh, but that's not usually the case. Right? God is looking down at breaking hearts of good saints. And he's saying to Samuel, he's saying to, to, to us that are maybe sitting here uh, muttering to ourselves, uh, why won't they listen to me? What am I doing wrong? What do I need to say? Maybe if I just had that one sentence. I've been wondering about that 
for the past 10 years of ministry. There's probably one sentence that I don't know about. <laughs> and if I just said it, that would be the right thing to say. And, uh, but it's, it, I, I can't. So what am I doing wrong? Right? And then uh, God, God says to Samuel, God says to you, God says to me, he says to us, nothing. Right? And maybe you need to hear that tonight. He says nothing. Right? You're doing everything that you can do for those people, for that person. You're doing everything that you should do. You're doing a really good job. They aren't rejecting you. It has nothing to do with you. They're rejecting me. They don't want me. And this is what I want you to do. I want you to go back to them. And I want you to tell them everything that will happen when they reject me. I want you to tell them the consequences of this course of action so that they can make an informed decision. And that's what Samuel does, starting in verse 10. Samuel told all the words of the Lord to the people who were asking him for a king. He said, this is what the king who will reign over you will do. He will take your sons, make them serve with his chariots and horses. And they will run in front of his chariots. And some he will assign to be commanders of thousands, commanders of fifties, and others to plow his ground and reap his harvest and still others to make weapons of war and equipment for his chariots. And he will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and vineyards and olive groves and give them to his attendants. He will take a tenth of your grain, your vintage, and give it to his officials and attendants and your men servants and maid servants, the best of your cattle and donkeys. And he will take for his own use, he will take a tenth of your flocks and yourselves and will become his servants. When that day comes, you will cry out for relief from the king you have chosen, and the Lord will not answer you in that day. But the people refused to listen to Samuel. No, they said, we want a king over us. Then we will be like all the other nations with a king to lead us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the, or all the people uh, said, he repeated it before the Lord. The Lord answered, listen to them and give them a king. And Samuel said to the men of Israel, everyone go back to his town. Right, and <clears throat> David Guzik has an amazing uh, point in his commentary for these verses. Just brilliant. And I wish that, that I could communicate it the way that he uh, is able to communicate things with words. But uh, as I've already said, I don't, I don't have that ability. So uh, he introduces this law of unintended consequences. It's a noteworthy thing to write down. Because you could Google that and uh, read all about it on like Wikipedia. And, but it's, it's, it's a profound point to introduce for this text, the law of unintended consequences, saying whenever you try to fix a problem with a solution, the solution will cause new problems that did not, you did not initially have. Right? And it's just a reality of problem solving. And so it's a very practical point to bring up uh, in, in, this, in this portion. Right? Problem arises, and we need to solve 
that problem. And so you think, I know just what to do. And so we do uh, what Israel is doing. We rush into doing something without considering the new problems that will result from our solution. Right? Because this new solution is nothing more than new problems. It's just inevitable. It comes with any solution, any sort of course of action. And God says, listen, you're not being mature. You're not considering this wisely the way that you ought to before you rush into this huge fundamental change in the way you organize government. So I'm going to make you very aware of what this is going to look like when you actually embark upon it. Right? And usually, when it comes to this sort of, uh, this sort of problem, when we set out to solve it, we err in one of two ways. Right? And so here's the first way. Often we don't consider the problem at all, and we think, uh, or the problems that will come from our solution at all, we think everything will be perfect as soon as I, as soon as I do this thing, whatever that thing is. And we jump into our uh, solution only to be completely blindsided by the new problems that come with that solution. And at this point, we begin to look for another total solution that is the answer, of course, to all of our new problems. I had this family member that's been married and divorced five times. And that's, that's a lot of times. Five times. And every single time she encounters a marital problem, she begins to scan the horizon for this new person that will undoubtedly be perfect, right? Because there is that perfect person out there. And she's sure that they will be the solution to all of her new problems that she's encountering in this new relationship. And then she throws herself into this new relationship with this new person without considering the consequences that are bound to come along with this new relationship. And many people make one decision after another, falling deeper into this bafflingly problematic scenario of the just very foreseeable issues that arise with their decisions because they're unable to trace it down to this root. This root that before you make a decision, you should consider the consequences of that decision, the new problems that will result from it. But there's a second problem. And the second problem, uh, when you consider you know, this problem-solving technique, is equally damning, and it's much more common with some of us more uh, pragmatic people. Right? You, you see uh, that there's a problem, and, uh, and, and you go, okay, well, I have this solution in mind, but Every single solution that you think of only introduces new problems, and so you sit around and you do nothing. And you take no action. And, and you, look in the, you look at your options, you make a list, whatever you do, I don't know what you do. And then you go, I've weighed it, and everything sticks. And so uh, every solution is a bad solution, so I'm not going to do anything. But the problem is, is that in your situation, things stink right now. So you do need to make some sort of a decision. The problem needs to be maturely addressed. And the shocking thing is, and this is the thing that, that uh, I think 
a lot of people are surprised to consider is that Israel was right in confronting Samuel. It wasn't wrong for Israel to come to Samuel and say, uh, you know, the way our government is right now is bad. I think a lot of Christians have this idea that it always should have stayed as a theocracy, right? And Sam alluded to that last week, that, that we have this idea that, no, this was the perfect government, but was it the perfect government? They had constant issues, right? And then and, and Israel went to Samuel and they said, there's problems here, and, and this needs to be addressed. So they were right in confronting Samuel with the problems, and, and I think we're wrong a lot of times in not confronting people when we see similar problems because we're faced with these types of things all the time and we, 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 we look at this you know thing before us whatever it is and you think well I don't want to hurt somebody's feelings right because that's a problem that will arise out of this solution in confronting them and you go I don't want to step on anyone's toes and after all no one's perfect and we start making excuses for everyone and everything and we go well after all Samuel is a good guy and uh, maybe we can all just you know get along and, and you know, there's no easy answer so I'm not going to choose any answer and so we remain silent. But the fact is that Samuel should not have set wicked leaders over the nation uh, just because they were his kids. Right? And, and, and the wicked leaders are not people that should be tolerated in position of leadership and ministry. So it was right to go to Samuel and say, we need to get these men out of the ministry. For the life of me, I don't know why more church attendees don't uh, confront their leaders like this more often when they have reason to. I think uh, we usually make so many excuses for things that we see just because we don't want to deal with it. The problem that will arise from our solution is uh, this sort of confrontation, so we just back away from it. They were right in saying that the present scenario wasn't preferable. But here's the problem. And here's the problem, and here's our problem. They rushed into a decision without considering the consequences. And since they refuse to consider those consequences, God makes them perfectly aware of them. And for many of us, for many of us more pragmatic people, there's no reason to make us aware of the problems. We've already been over it a dozen times mentally before we've considered it. And because we're so uh, cognizant of it, we can't find a perfect scenario to settle on. Uh, so we decide to to not move an inch. Something needs to be done. Because we're faced with these things so often that we just let slide and we let go on until they're a bigger problem than they ever were initially. And we refuse to make a decision. We move to, we refuse to move an inch towards uh, resolving an issue. And both ends of the problem-solving scenario are a trap that we fall into. We need to be willing to acknowledge the fact that there is no perfect answer. And I think that's a hard thing for most people to acknowledge. But that is where problem-solving begins. 
you know, as David Guzik in his commentary here said that, that when we acknowledge that there's no perfect answer except for one, and it's to follow Jesus. Uh, but that's not true. That is not a deviation from the standard. When you choose to make that decision to follow Jesus, if you haven't already, you discover a whole bunch of new problems that result from that solution. Right? When you choose to follow Jesus, you, you, you should do what Jesus tells you to do in Luke 14, where he says, count the cost right, before, before following me. And why does he say that? Because there are costs to count. Right? Even in the, the most righteous, holy decision that you could ever make in your entire life, and you would say, if anything is perfect, it has to be this perfect thing. There's a cost to consider. You're going to be sacrificing maybe friends. The, the problem that, that could arise is, is going to be a problem of time and of vices and of sins and of habits. It'll cost you something. It's wise to consider that. And, and if, you, if you have weighed it and you, you have a decision to make, whatever that decision uh, might be, to move forward righteously and willingly, knowing that the Lord goes with you as you face those problems. And, and, and if you can say that, that, that I've done what is righteous, and I know that God goes with me, then you've chosen correctly, and this is exactly what Samuel lays out for Israel. He says, this is what you need to know before you move forward in your decision. And can you say that you're doing the righteous thing? Can you say that God goes with you in this decision? And they cut him off, and they say, they say no. It says uh, there in verse 19 that they, they refuse to listen. And then they don't, they don't care. We have a problem, and this is our solution. And we're not going to consider the consequences that will come along with the solution. We don't want to hear it. We want a king to rule over us. This is the perfect solution. Right? This is the five marriage scenario. They're looking for that thing without a problem connected to it, nothing associated with it. They say, he will lead us. He will go out before us. He will fight our battles. And listen, this is the moment that they strip God of everything that he is and everything that he wants to be for them, for his beloved children and they attach it to another and they say we don't we don't need him we don't need God what we need is this new mystery man this new mystery man is the answer to everything and and God says this man that you're inviting in to rule over you to, to control your life to guide you will do nothing but take from you I want to do nothing but give to you. And it's this John 10.10 moment in the Old Testament where Jesus says the thief came only to steal, kill, and destroy. I have come to give them life and that to the full. Right? This is all your king is going to do for you. Do you realize that? Do you see that? Your king is going to come to you and he will do nothing 
but take from you. He will make demands upon you. He will put you in bondage and strip you of your dignity. I want to bless you. I want to free you. I have come so that you might have life. They won't listen. They choose the thief. And they invite him in. And in verse 21, God says, listen to them and give them everything that they want. And let them learn, as many of us need to learn, just the hard way. And next week, we will meet this mystery man that, that comes in to uh, answer all of their ills and right all of their wrongs. And we'll see what course he sets the nation on. And it will become exactly as God said it will be. So, um, we are ending a bit early. Should I see if there's any questions? <laughs> Does anyone have any questions? No, okay, let's pray. <laughs> no, I'll give you a minute. Does anyone, does anyone have anything? Despite the fact that we're ending early, that message was exactly 46 minutes and 37 seconds long. Wow. I know, I know. You're like, and I felt every minute of it. <laughs> <laughs> Anything? Nothing? No? No? Yay? Yay? Nay? Let's pray. Lord, thank you for uh, this evening. God, thank you for this chapter. Lord, thank you for this ability that you've given us to consider things maturely. Lord, rather than moving forward flippantly, I pray, God, that we would be uh, sober about all of our decisions. Lord, that we wouldn't just leap into solutions Lord, but that as we weigh everything, we'd be able to say at the end of it, well, I'm going to choose this, and I'm going to move forward righteously and know that you go with me. Lord, the, the fact is, and, you know, Ebenezer testifies to it, that you go with us regardless. You know, we can't drop you off at a bad decision. You'll be there with us every inch of the way. But Lord, the things that we drag you through is terrible to consider. Lord, you've given us this ability to see things through and to say, is this a wise thing for me to do? I pray, God, that we would just listen to you. Lord, that we would consider Lord, all the consequences. Lord, that we count the cost and follow you in all of these decisions as you and daily set them before us, Lord, great and small. Lord, we so often wonder what your will is and, you know, what we should do with our lives and a lot of times it isn't, you know, flashing holy neon signs. It's just this simple, Lord, you've given us this ability. You want to speak to us personally and we should choose this type of thing where we're choosing you as our king in every way and 
and in every moment to see how that plays out. God, we praise you. We praise you, God, that you are willing to be our king. And thank you, God, that you're so patient with us as your people, that are so prone to forget your goodness and your grace. Lord, I ask that you would bless these people, Lord, and I pray that you use this message to encourage us, Lord, to edify us, God, to exhort us for a song, too. Lord, do the greater things. And we trust this all into your hands, and we pray in your name. Amen. 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 Amen.